Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another healing conversation brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. My name is Loren Gailey. I'm absolutely thrilled about today's topic. It's on dolphins and 2012. You know, that sounds odd, dolphins and 2012. You might ask, what do dolphins have to do with 2012? And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. My guest is Eric Rankin, author of The Aquarians, an Ancient Mayan Prophecy, a Modern Phenomenon. Eric's book can be found on Amazon.com. In fact, it's in the top 1% of Amazon books. I think you'll be interested to know that customers who bought his book also buy books by authors such as Greg Braden, Daniel Pinsbeck, and Carl Johan Kalaman. And all of those authors also have books that talk about the Mayan Prophecy and 2012. So welcome, Eric, to today's show. Thanks very much, Lauren. I'm happy to be with you, happy to have the conversation with you. I'm thrilled to speak with you today. I have read your book, and I dreamt about dolphins. We can talk more about that later. But first of all, I do want to mention that your book is fiction, and as you said, it's really an adventure tale to introduce many real facts that are out there. When we talk about 2012, We come from a place of love. There is no doom and gloom. It is nothing to be frightened or scared about. It's one of celebration and hope and co-creation. And I'd like to take a quick moment to read Eric's author's notes in the back of his book. He says, although this book is a work of fiction, the story contains many factual information that you may wish to investigate further. More importantly, I hope you choose to become a proactive participant in the age of Aquarius. Eric, what facts should we investigate? What do you want people to get out of this book? Well, you know, there's there's a few, I think, that are, are worth kind of combining, and that's a big part of, I think, if you're looking at anything, um, a big picture thing like the shift in consciousness or the age of Aquarius or the end of the mind calendar are, they're big picture concepts. So if you get bogged down in little details, you'll lose it. If you say, well, you know, the Mayans, what, what do they really know and what does it really mean? And some people argue even the date. Is it really December 21st, 2012? You're, you're losing it. it. It is a conceptual picture, and that's when it starts blending with the concepts of the age of Aquarius. We've heard about that, you know, from the song from the 60s. There really is um, an astronomical, not astrological, but an astronomical validity to ages. Um, astronomers will tell you that there really is such a timeline of an age, a, a roughly 2,000-year timeline. So that's a fascinating thing to learn that we have gone from the most recent Aries was 4,000 years or 2,000 years ago. We are in the age of Pisces right now. We are moving into the age of Aquarius. And um, what people, ages um, after that, when you start recognizing that we have been living these ages, they become earmarked with sort of what was that age about. And the age of Aries um, was sort of this um, kind of emerging into an idea that there was a creative force. Um, a lot of mythologies were born in that time. And then in the age of Pisces, that God was making a move, um, the creative force of all was making a move to be known to the creation. Um, and religions were sort of born there. A lot of people say that the age of Pisces and Jesus were one and the same thing. Even the Jesus' symbology was, is aligned with a fish. Um, and then we move into the age of Aquarius, where it's open spirituality, less about religion and dogma and following form, 
um, it's open-mindedness, it's compassion, it's love, it's forgiveness. It's the things that we attach to an Aquarian personality. So my book wasn't written for only Aquarians. It was written for all of us that we will all be living in the age of Aquarius, this age that has been earmarked by love, compassion, forgiveness, which definitely would, would mark a, a movement away from where we are now, a sort of a transitional period, and that's where we bring it back into the Mayan calendar, is the Mayans with this cyclical calendar system of, of their own. That's the first thing we know about the Mayan calendar, is what it was not this linear track of time with a vanishing point, everything stops, boom, you know, it's the end of all things as we know it. Mm-hmm. That would be impossible in the Mayan uh, view because of their cyclical nature, the way they track times like seasons and orbits and transits. Everything to them was this cycling of nature, very organic in the way that they viewed time. So and then so we're at the end of this five thousand, actually fifty one hundred year long period of time, um, called the long count calendar. And it's um we know that they were imagining sort of an end of things as we know them, or we're sort of in the final stages of what you might call a winter of this 5,000-year-long period, and we're moving into the spring of the next period. So again, we get this sort of transition into lightness, and a transition into rebirth and growth. So the, the two things, the end of the Mayan calendar and the age of Aquarius, thematically really do blend well together. So those are some interesting actual facts about both that you can kind of start seeing, wow, this really does kind of speak to a logical sense. One of the most interesting facts from your book is the fact that when we talk about all these ages, the Aries and the Pisces and the Aquarius, the dolphins and whales have been there all along. Definitely. They've been a lot longer than any of these. To them, these most recent ages would be just a blink of an eye. Dolphins have lived on the planet for 40 million years, looking like they look like. Before that, they were a species that was around, but they were a land-dwelling species. They lived on land. They looked sort of like a, a mid-sized or smallish hippopotamus um, that re-evolved. If you think that all life evolved from the seas, dolphins and whales re-evolved back into the water, which is an amazing concept that this warm-blooded mammal air-breathing mammal is going to move back and live 100% of its life as a fish uh, that is forced to breathe air. Um, But they've been successful at it. They're still here, of course, looking like they look like. So it's it's an amazing thing of what a successful species they've been. And, of course, many people are aware of how intelligent dolphins are. in relation to their body weight is the largest ratio of any animal that has ever lived on the planet. A 200-pound bottlenose dolphin will have a larger brain than a 200-pound human will have. Um, and it is, is even more intricately folded, has a larger processing center between the two, the cerebral cortex. Um, there's so many studies now that are, you know, report interaction true intelligence being conveyed by dolphins from their social structure to as their behaviors and trainings are being monitored. Um, We really do know more and more every day that there's so much more going on. Um, And our technology is just beginning to catch up to it. And I don't know if you're ready to talk about how do dolphins tie into the age of Aquarius, but whenever you are, we can do that. No, I was just going to ask that. Well, uh, the age of Aquarius as has been earmarked, if you start doing some, if you want to do some of your own internet searches or Googling, okay. um, you will see this word attached to the age of Aquarius and it's transparency. It's, it's amazing to me how much I will find this word popping up all over the place as one of the earmarks of the age of transparency. And as applied to humans, it means a time when we finally sort of lose the facade. We no longer are just about a superficial presentation, you know, of, of what we are. We are much more real and see-through, transparent. We have lost the, the defense. We have lost the mask. And we're just presenting our real and genuine self. If, if you want to say flaws and all, um, it, it, we're just more genuine. And dolphins, this is the way it ties into dolphins, dolphins have this 
absolutely astounding sense of echolocation. They can send out a pulse of ultrasonic sound. They can get back, receive and reconstruct in their mind this dimensional image that goes so far as it's a four-dimensional image. It's not just an outward presentation, but a see-through, much like an MRI scan or an ultrasound done on, done on a pregnant woman. They're seeing through and into each other. So they send an ultrasonic blast at one, get this image back of, oh, I just see what you just ate. I see your heart's beating fast. I see it looks like you might be in stress. Um, I can see a cancerous growth or disease. There's no hiding. It, it, their reality, a dolphin's reality, is there's no hiding what's going on within them. So these dolphins have been living a transparent existence with each other for millions of years. And it's just incredible to think that, you know, we're not going to have this ultrasonic pulse sense that they have, but we can begin to sort of integrate this ideal of transparency with ourselves by choice, by just losing that facade and saying, I'm going to be real with you, you're going to be real with me, and how drastic would that be if you just bumped into strangers and knew you could ask them anything, they could ask you anything, and you're going to just be genuine right off the bat. Um, I mean, that's that's a paradigm shift if there is, ever was, was one in um, human behavior. Absolutely. When you've got nothing to hide, you cannot lie. We do see into each other. Do dolphins have telepathy? And if we are going to be in that age where we're going to see others' thoughts, that will make you real, as you mentioned. It will be an amazing shift, and this word shift is what's sort of being adopted now by the hopeful people, is we are shifting this age of Aquarius 2012 moment, end of the mind calendar, is this moment of transition. We're shifting out of one paradigm, shifting into another, and we can talk about that, I mean, because it's easy to sort of just drop these buzzwords, new paradigm and things like that, shift, but if you don't know it will shift from what to what, it's not going to have, it's not going to stick with you the same. And you mentioned, is it on December 21st, 2012? I think that time can change, and it could be around that time, but we're already starting to see into the fourth dimension, that we're living in the fourth dimension. So you take these people like you, obviously, I don't know you very well, but people that have felt this vibrational changing going on, this opening up. I mean, you could say it started from the hippie movement, but it's really started way before that. There were people that have had visions of this broader sense of what humanity can be. I mean, going back thousands of years, you look at Confucius or you, you, know, mm. you look at Buddha, Gandhi, they were really talking to a larger dimension of ourselves where we feel hyper-connected. We feel in tune with nature. We feel in tune with our higher vibrational self. And that represents new paradigm thinking. You could call it new age. You could call it new thought. But it represents new paradigm thinking. I guess you could call it fourth-dimensional thinking. But you have to, before you can go there, I think you sort of have to say, what was what is third-dimensional thinking? What is the old paradigm? And the old paradigm, if you could tear it down to its most simple statement, is probably we've been motivated by fear and lack. And it has served us to a point. Mm -hmm. We've, you know, it, there's no denying that if danger is present, it's good that you have something within you that says, I should, I need to fight or flee. You know, that's, that's a trigger response in us. It's self-preservation to a point and does serve our humanity. Um, and we have perfected. All, your, t all your, your time there thinking that threat is always around you or you feel that same physical fight or flight tendency when no longer, you know, are at the same conditions around you. You don't have the saber-toothed tiger ready to pounce on you out of, you know, the bushes, yet you feel this anxiety, you're living with this fear, your adrenaline is, in is running. Um, that's yeah. not such a healthy place. So your uh. old paradigm would be a reality based and grounded in fear, lack, you know, you better hoard your stuff up through the winter, you better be yeah. prepared for having enough. Mm. We're moving out of that. We're moving into yeah. this thing that is always called to us, this higher dimension of awareness, of compassion, forgiveness, 
guiding us through our daily existence. That definitely represents a shift from where the global human society has been and is right now, and we are moving, and there's so many people moving into this, willing to give them themselves up to this idea that love will steer the day, a feeling of completeness and wholeness and not uh, fear-groundedness is what's going to motivate us in our daily life. That represents a very big shift in the way we think about our existence here on the planet. And what a welcoming shift to not live in the fear that there is nothing to fear. And as people go into meditation more and more, those are the messages that we get out of it. There's, it's love. Love is all there is. It feels good. I think we can honor where we've been because we have certainly perfected the 3D, the third dimension, haven't we? I think people are learning that in every moment we can choose the feeling of that fear or we can choose to let it, it's an energy of love, not fear. And I think as people hold that higher vibration of the thoughts that we want to be, Gandhi said it, be the change you wish to see in the world. You know, Eric, I want to mention, did you see that news article about the dolphin pods that stopped those Somali pirates from attacking the Chinese cargo ships? I did read that, and, you know, I come from, (laughs) now I'm going to sound like, uh, because my book represents uh, maybe uh, a straddling of two worlds. Um, Mm -hmm. My book definitely incorporates much dolphin fact, um, where I feel like someone who has studied marine biology or dolphin physiology is not going to roll their eyes at it, and yet I also try to appeal to people that are focused on fourth-dimensional thinking. So as I read that article about the dolphins, there were two parts of me that read it. And if uh, a marine biologist was reading it, they would just go, um, dolphins did not do anything other than their natural behavior. There was a megapod on the move. Mm -hmm. When you see thousands of dolphins congregated together, it is an awesome sight. I have been in the midst of that many times, and it just fills you with awe to see a megapod on the move, surfacing out of the water, um, and it does look very purposeful in what they're doing. It is also a very natural behavior. I mean, you're going to see it if you're out in the oceans quite a bit. So I think a marine scientist would just go, you know what, a super pod and some Somalian pirates happen to merge at the same point in the ocean at the same time. Mm. A fourth dimensional person, um, as yourself would say, there was something else going on. There were dolphins understanding on some level um, threat energy, aggressive energy, and we're doing something to intervene. I'm not going to poo-poo either of those, but I I can see both of those. I, I know exactly what a scientist would say. I know pretty much what a fourth dimensional thinker would say. And I, I think what I bring to so many conversations uh, is I feel like I have a foot both uh, ensconced in the third and fourth dimensions. <laughs> yes. You know, I wanted to ask you, how did you find yourself in love with dolphins? It was a mental intrigue first. I grew up in the yachting industry. The lead character in my book is sort of my personal experience up to a a certain point of my life. I grew up uh, here in Newport Beach on the waterfront managing a yacht brokerage, was out in sea trials, you know, almost daily out in the local waters of the Pacific, and um, was exposed to dolphins. And dolphins are so highly interactive, these wild, intelligent animals. We've all heard, you know, we've all watched Flipper from the 60s and stuff and, and have been, been aware that dolphins are a, an intelligent species. And when you go out on a boat, rather than what we are used, used to with uh, wild animals, you know, they see people and they flee. You know, they stop for a moment, frozen in fear, and then they just take off. Mm. And dolphins are very engaging. They want to come investigate you. They want to come and play with you, ride the bow wave of your boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, it's not only riding the bow wave. They, you can stop your boat, and dolphins will often just come up and give you, they'll roll over on their sides to where their eye can look straight at you, sort of pause there. You know that there's this intelligent interaction happening, and that just was happening so much to me. I go, i I got to learn more about this species. And there was just already, when I was learning, mid-80s, early 90s, there was so much information already out there. And uh, I stumbled on the work of John Lilly, and then he's the late John Lilly. He died uh, 10 years ago or so. Um, But he 
approached dolphins probably much in the same way. He was a scientist, but he became just incrementally aware, more and more aware of what these animals do, their social structure, and he was able to do physiological studies on dolphins, and he just became so amazed uh, and, and perplexed, actually. The more he learned, the more intrigued and perplexed he came. Like, he was the guy who anesthetized a healthy dolphin. He was doing blood work on one, and um, it just died. And he was like, oh, my gosh, here's an intelligent creature that is consciously breathing. And because we know that because all we did was just put it to sleep, more or less, and it died. So it must have to think about every single breath going in and out of its body. You know, mm. what's the first, the cornerstone of doing inward work or when you're in meditation or you're doing yoga, it's becoming aware of your breath going in and out of your body. It puts you in the, the moment. It's the very first thing we can do. And here dolphins are living their entire existence from birth to death, aware, thinking about every single breath that goes in and out of their body. Mm-hmm. He was also so per- intrigued by the brain size. It's like, why would a dolphin living in this very low stimulus environment, at least to us, of the open ocean, what are they doing with this large, complex brain? Um, so he began to do studies as best as he could, pre-computers, um, where he sort of reverse engineered. He took the, the brain that was closest that he could find to a dolphin's, which happened to be a human brain, and put that in a low-stimulus environment. He invented the sensory deprivation tank. I mean, it was a study of putting a human in a in an almost zero-stimulus environment, a, a enclosed tank where they floated uh, with their eyes and open, their senses active and alert. You could hear, you could smell, um, but in that environment, a human brain starts hallucinating, starts manufacturing a really reality for itself. So he started kind of building these hypotheses that dolphins might just do that. They might live in this state of manufactured existence for themselves. Maybe they can create uh, a, 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 um, almost like a three- or four-dimensional space for them to inhabit. I mean, he just he actually started driving himself slightly crazy. He began using hallucinogenic drugs inside the sensory deprivation tank. I mean, he just wanted to learn more and more and more. But to me, he was the first person to ask these amazingly interesting questions about dolphin reality, social structure, what are they doing with all this brain power? And now technology is starting to catch up. I mean, to him, doing ultrasonic, you know, making these suppositions about ultrasonic capabilities, he didn't have computers to back up his theories. Well, now we do. Dolphins really do send out these, you know, amazingly high ultrasonic pulses, 60, 70,000 hertz cycles, which is virtually double what we use for ultrasounds in, in pregnant women. 45,000 hertz will give you a really good visual representation of this unborn fetus. Well, imagine doubling that. Think of the resolution you may be getting back of this three-dimensional imagery that's going on. You start to get this almost proof of this, you know, ideas that John Lilly had. Technology is now support, starting to support the things that he and back then, these outlandish things. Dolphins may communicate with pictures, you know, these, this brain power that they have. They may be calculating things on such a higher level. Well, now we're catching up where the technology is kind of proving him right in many ways, and it's an amazing time to, uh, to be alive to see all this, this merging of supposition with proof. You know, there's even, I know someone who had a friend that was researching the dolphins, and the government came in and took all his recordings and basically shut them down. I, I don't doubt that. You know, there's a lot of allegorical stories out there about what dolphins are doing. We know that the Navy is, has used dolphins for years. They, they downplay it, but we all know it. Um, I'm sure they have lots and lots of, of some pretty amazing facts about for everything from behavior, behavior to acoustic echolocating abilities, um, certainly, you know, learning capabilities. It, it's um, the more you learn, the more fascinating this species becomes. And and here they are uh, again. We've been around kind of as a. I mean, we've been around a hundred thousand years, or maybe even a million years, if you want to go way back. 
as a fairly successful species, but as a technologically grounded species, you know, based in agriculture and, and, and societal structure, really only about 10,000 years. And if you talk about um, industrial man, only 500 years. I mean, we're a blink in the eye of, you know, whole our whole evolution where dolphins have had this long, I mean, imagine if you could sound into something and keep a, more or less a digital file of it, and here's what dolph- uh, many scientists believe dolphins to do, retransmit this imagery. Imagine that. Imagine 40 million years of this holographic record um, being podcast. And, and what an amazing word that we use, podcast, because dolphins travel in pods. Um, mm-hmm. being podcast over 40 million years. That covers human evolution. That covers Earth's evolution. It covers, it covers geological plant, you know, plate tectonic shift. If there's a record like that that scientists now believe dolphins may be carrying with them, what what a thing to access! And remember, it's a picture language. If we if we could access it like the characters do in my book, if we could access that, we would instantly understand so much of what dolphins are communicating with. We don't need to learn dolphin syntax. They don't need to learn our syntax of communication. If they if you communicate with picture language, anybody could understand what it was. So we're we're on the threshold almost in many ways. Scientists are doing this work. Marine biologists are doing this work where they are receiving through a transducer ultrasonic pulses. They're transducing and sending these pulses to other dolphins who seem to understand what was being broadcast from the first dolphin. So we are very close to this being a reality, and and I'm excited. I think we're going to see a breakthrough moment in communication within possibly the next decade. As humanity moves into our shift, and when there's no veil, there's no hiding, do you possibly think that we will have that capability? It wouldn't be achieved the same way, but to the same end, I think it there could be that. Um, I think we are, I do energy work. Um, I was trained in healing touch. Um, I, I feel sensitive to people's energy. And you know what? I think a lot of people do. If you can, it, before they shut down and say, oh, boy, energy work and very, very stuff, you can, a lot of people would, um, acknowledge that we have energy. You can walk into a room, you can be around a person, or you just get a sense of of something is not right or is very right. You feel a sense of safety around this person. You feel a sense of love around this person. Um, you know, that's, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen for us the way it happens uh, with dolphins because theirs is physiological. They can manufacture this sound deep within their jaw. They can generate 60,000 hertz. They have this uh, melon. Uh, it's called a melon. If you see that bulging forehead on dolphins and whales, that's mm-hmm. not their skull shape. That's this um, lens of gelatinous kind of goo, almost looks like silicone, that they can shape and, and use as a lens to focus sound in an amazing way. We don't have that physiology, so we're not going to do it the same way that dolphins do. But idealistically, can, can we tap into others if someone lets their guard down and projects a very honest energy about who they are? Can we read that and make assumptions about it? Yes, I think we most certainly can and, use, and evolve from there. That mm-hmm. there's no hiding. If people are representing an honest representation of who they are, what they're about right off the bat, and you know it, and they know you know it, that changes our existence on this planet. It really does. Um, and so I guess the answer to your question is I think, yes, we will be able to sort of mimic what dolphins are capable of doing, but we're not going to do it the same way that dolphins do it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's great to look at them as models of transparency and transparent behavior, um, but but use it the way we can use it and we can open up some people you know call it the pineal gland in us this area right up in your forehead above your eyebrows mm-hmm. it's sensitive like this receptor dish to people's energies to their intent to what they're about um i definitely believe that uh, even a naysayer would say no i i, I think i can read people i think i know when someone's um 
um, a threat to me. I think I know when they're shut down or open. Um, that's what we're talking about in very elementary terms, but building from there to a place of it becoming much more organic to us and easy to access. Yes, and even your characters in, in the book. We have Ryan, who's a you know pretty handsome guy, wealthy. He's a TV star. He sits down with Rebecca, and she reads his mind or his thoughts and builds on it one thought at a time. That was a powerful scene mm -hmm. um, for me in that book. And I wanted, you know, no scene is very long and drawn out in my book. I want people to be able to sort of read into it their own reality um, or their own take on things. So you, you, you'll read these concepts in two or you know, three pages, but the scene you're talking about is this shallow, superficial guy who's sort of lust-driven after this beautiful dolphin trainer. He takes her to dinner, and she's going to be who she really is, who is this open book, honest, um, not hiding behind anything. But what the exchange, the magical exchange that happens between them is she not only sort of honestly says her read on him, you know, she just says, I think you're probably about this, but she allows him the opportunity to do the same with her. She goes, I think that you could probably do this yourself, and I'm telling you, I'm here open. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. If you get something right about me, I will acknowledge it. So he, uh, there's this little micro picture of a, of a macro movement that he at first is very uncomfortable with the idea, but from her prodding, he, he gives it a try, and he makes some very simple assumptions about her, but like peeling away the layers of an onion, it reveals something else. And after he peels that way, it reveals something else. So within 20 minutes, he has gotten to the core, kind of the core of who she was, and it's amazing to him. He's moved by this experience, and it's new to him. Um, and it is a very powerful experience, and I, I'm glad you, you tapped into that in, in the story because it was important to me to, to have that exchange. Yeah, there's a couple of other things in the story that I'd like to have you explain, particularly about the 1111. You know, we have Ishel. Ishel, who is a, he is a real Mayan uh, goddess in the culture. Ishel is a... Mel Gibson made a movie called Apocalypto a couple of years ago, and there's a scene where the people are scared, and they start praying to the goddess Ischel. So I mm. thought that was pretty cool. But she's a, she is a goddess. It's, it's interesting because her whole life, she gets this digital clock from the 70s with the tiles that flip down with every minute passing, and she doesn't have any electricity. So this is her, it's a memento that she carries with her all her life, and she prays over it. Yeah, there is, uh, there's a, you know, some shamanistic type of characters, and this is uh, a Mexican or a girl born in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, born to a Mayan family, and she is brought up in the ancient Mayan ways. She is only taught the Mayan language. She's made well-versed in the Mayan culture. She, they travel, the family travels to these Mayan architectural spaces, and she's, so she's already feeling much aligned with her culture and tradition and heritage, um, and yet on her 16th birthday, her father gives her, because, you know, we're in a moment, her father wants to give her a valuable gift, so it's this piece of modern technology, and it's this wood grain digital clock. Uh, like you said, it has the tiles. It can't work. It, it's not going to show anything. If it, uh, it'll, I mean, it will show its time if it's not plugged in because it is these tiles. And when he gives it to her, it happens to be on 11-11. That was from the manufacturer. It just happens to be set on 11-11. And seeing those numbers triggers her. She's One, she's at first triggered, and so is her dad, because ones, um, uh, uh, sticks, and dots are very reminiscent of Mayan numerology. All of Mayan numbers are combinations of sticks and dots. Mm -hmm. So a Mayan number 11 is two sticks and a dot at their side. The number 12 would be two six and two dots at its side. So instantly there's in, this intrigue that 1111 kind of looks like Mayan numerology, um, mm -hmm. but something triggers her more than that. She, she sees these numbers lined up, she sees the dots in the middle, and it becomes sort of a graphic symbolism to her, and she doesn't know why, but she does know that she's triggered by it, and she delves into this mystery almost like she, it's her pathway or gateway or doorway to accessing a broader spirituality, uh, a broader message of what the gods are trying to um, 
transmit somehow, and it, and it somehow she knows that it's through this digital clock, this this symbolism. So she makes it sort of her life. Now this is a fictional aspect. She makes it her life's purpose to sit at the steps of one of the temples in Tulum and every night look at this clock and then sort of telegraph, beam out to the world this symbology, this this eleven eleven symbology that she's seen ever since the first digital clock was invented. And of course, the tie-in now um, is there are people since digital clocks were invented who have felt triggered by seeing eleven eleven on a digital clock. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the strangest thing in the world if you've never if you're hearing this for the first time. But before the internet, whatever people on their own privately were feeling triggered to look at a digital clock when it was 11-11, and one step further, to be sort of um, led into this idea that a, an important message is, is somehow trying to make its way through to them, of something big, transitional, spiritual, um, a message, message of movement and transition, and it's like, why would you feel it? Like, it's a piece of this transitional puzzle, and it's like, why in the world would not only you feel inclined to look at a clock at 11.11 or make special note of it, but sort of attach the same significant meaning as other people are attaching the same significant meaning. That's a phenomenon. I mean, that's a true double-blind test phenomenon that these people are seeing it and attaching a similar meaning to it all on their own, sort of like the characters did in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where they were all receiving this image of this mountain, flat-topped mountain, uh, mountain mm-hmm. didn't know what it meant, but they were getting it and knew that it meant something. So the 11-11 tie-in to 2012 and the age of Aquarius is an astounding, real mystery, is that the U.S. Naval Observatory is the branch of government that tracks the movement of the stars and planet, the branch of government that says when the seasons officially change and shift, which is, of course, around the equinoxes and solstices. Mm -hmm. So we take the event that ends the Mayan calendar, which is the winter solstice of 2012, Mm -hmm. and the U.S. Naval Observatory says that event will occur at exactly 11.11 in the morning, Greenwich Mean Time, Universal Mean Time, whatever you want to call it. So it's like all of a sudden, it's like, have these people been receiving this 11.11 code, this trigger, as if to direct their attention to... 2012, the winter solstice, to the to this Aquarian shift taking place, it's just, I, I get the chills, I've written this book five years ago, and I get the chills as I still talk about it, it's like, man, it feels like, yes, this is what's trying to bubble forth in human consciousness, so I incorporated these ideals in a, in a novel, but all these things are really out there brewing on their own, and merging, and becoming aware to more and more people especially through the Internet, every day. And so the Navy, that's a fact, the 11-11? That's an absolute fact. The okay. U.S. Naval Observatory, it's the oldest scientific building built in the United States. It's still there. It's where the vice president lives. Um, it's got a domed observatory. They still, the U.S. Naval Observatory is the branch of government that monitors um, the global positioning satellites and the atomic clock. It was formed, you know, when, when you go back before electronic navigational aids, the only real navigational aids, aids were planetary movements, track of the moon, track of the sun, track of the stars. All this stuff was valuable information to the Navy, so they set up a branch to do very precise calculations of star movement, transits like Venus, all these things. There is a branch of government that follows this stuff very closely to this day, but it was founded because it was important navigational aid information back in the 1700s. Um, so they still are doing their job, and you can go to the U.S. Naval Observatory's website. If you Google U.S. Naval Observatory seasonal change or season shift, it will take you to the page that goes all the way up to like 2020. It will show you the moment of equinox, the moment of solstice for every year, and sure enough, the winter solstice 2012, the event that ends the Mayan calendar, is listed right on the U.S. Naval Observatory site, will occur at 11-11, and there's only one 11-11 a day. The, 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 to the mm-hmm. military, 23-11, there's only one 11-11 in, in a mm-hmm. naval ca- uh, time clock, because uh-huh. 11-11 night would be 23-11. Mm-hmm. So the odds that this 5,000-year-long Mayan calendar ending on this event 
that will take place at 11, 11 in the morning, if you say all those things could merge in the same moment, would be an astronomical like one in 500 million chance that these things would fall, these uh, spiritual, uh, you know, sort of metaphysical elements, but they're forming in the real world that, that you know, people that need, you know, uh, some sort of proof, intriguing element of proof to it, like, well, I don't know if you call it proof, but it sure makes for some very compelling um, pieces of a puzzle coming together in a very real way that just, it, I mean, I, I give book lectures and I, you know, go to book clubs, and when they hear that this was real stuff, seriously, it's like a group goosebump-a-thon, it's like, oh my gosh, people that are just hearing about this for the first time are very pragmatic in their thinking, very, not very hippie-like at all, are just like, that's crazy. <laughs> Well, the goosebumps is an indicator. You know, when we feel goosebumps, that's that's a good feeling. But you know what I find the most fascinating? You mentioned that these are pieces, a larger puzzle coming together. What I see is that even science is coming together with this. Science is now looking at quantum physics, which we know is the way that we co-create our world and manifest our desires. It's wonderful that the information that you're getting out through your book helps to open people's minds. In the very least, it helps to pique their interest. Right, and that was the that was the the real reason for me writing my book in the way that I wrote it. Why I chose the novel format. It was to pique interest. That that's exactly what it was. Um, was to intrigue someone enough to dip their toe into the realm of what's going on. Feel comfortable. No one's pushing them into it. No one's bombarding them with theory and you better accept this or you're an idiot kind of ideology, it's, it's to get you interested, to pique your interest, because there is so much interesting stuff going on. And like you said, this merging of, of science, science, as it progresses, really does shed light on mysticism. I mean, we talk about uh, string theory or the way that the universe works. Um, it, it, it starts sounding very mystical it, when it reaches the edge of scientific understanding. It starts sounding like what we would call mysticism from the from older days, mm-hmm. and like even the thing that thoughts or are things. I mean that a thought has an energy so much so that it could be count as as much of a thing as a a three dimensional object to you and I. A three dimensional object is. Uh, an energy wave pattern, if you break it down to its most basic thing, is it is atoms of light and electromagnetic energy combined to form a certain thing. Well, we're a combination of electromagnetic energy. Our thoughts are firings of electromagnetic energy. Why wouldn't they go out from us in the way that they do and start having impact on other electromagnetic things? It, it's Science is going to prove as the longer we stay alive on this planet, science is going to prove more and more and more that there is just this amazing dimension to our existence that we we couldn't fully understand. Maybe we'll never fully understand, but we are growing into it if given the chance. If we don't, you know, if we stay our keep ourselves open to coexistence, and the way that we're going to do that is is peace. Coexistence means peace. If you said something that I wanted to tap on a long time ago, we have mastered the third dimension. The third dimension, third dimensional thinking is fairly low vibrational masculine energy thinking um, that serves its purpose. But third dimensional thinking says, if there's a threat to me, um, I can flee it or I can attack it. Now, we are at the masters of third dimensional energy because if we say, I'm going to attack it, Available to us is weaponry that more or less wipes it out and in the process may wipe ourselves out as well. That's never existed in in third-dimensional thinking before. The very first third-dimensional attackers were by hand, then rocks and sticks, then throwing things from javelins to catapults, missiles, bombs. But when you get to the point where the thing that you're going to throw at somebody, humanity, which includes you, can devastate it and wipe it out and make the planet in an inhabitable, we've reached the apex of third dimensional thinking to where we think, okay, if we want to stay around on this planet, we're going to have to rethink what we want to be like. We want to continue our existence on this planet. Compassion is no longer stupid to think about. Looking at the global society, all of us is one. All of this is a human race 
you know, completely identical to each other over this entire planet, that's not stupid thinking if we want to continue on on our journey of being humans. You said that science will prove many of these things about thoughts, and we know thoughts are things, and time is speeding up. You know, bad thoughts equal a bad day. Science will prove this someday, but I think we as individuals will learn it first because we're going to know it, we're going to feel it, we're going to feel what it feels like to carry a day of bad thoughts, negative thoughts. And so, again, that's where the choice comes in, and that's what 2012 is about. Any prophecy related to what the Mayan, end of the Mayan calendar meant did not come from the calendar itself. It came from the Mayan shamans, these uh, specialty shamans called Aki day keepers, who were, uh, they were seers, they were prophets. They were the people that were attaching meaning to these long runs of time. Mm. Mayan day keeper shamans are still with us today, still making prophecies. And if you access what they're saying, they are saying, the 2012 is a shift, a choice point into much better things ahead for humanity. So if people go, ah, those are ancient minds, one, they didn't know what they were talking about, or, or two, they said it was the end of the world, or three, you know, uh, they, they, that was then and this is now. Mayan shaman daykeepers are with us today, still tuned into the energies of what their ancient ancestors were doing, still tuned into the calendar and its workings and what it's doing, carrying this lineage, lineage with them, this culture with them. And they acknowledge Hun Bat's men, who is one of the most famous Mayan elders living in Chichen Itza and giving guided tours there, mm-hmm. says the age of Aquarius is the very same thing as this opening moment in time at the end of the Mayan calendar. You get a Mayan shaman to say that, that's a pretty big deal, I think, to say, literally, to say out loud, the age of Aquarius really is the same thing as this end point, beginning point, this transition point at the end of the Mayan calendar. I think that's really powerful. And don't you think that when the Spanish Inquisition came in and burned all the Mayan books, except for four, and one of those books made it into a museum in Dresden, Germany, so we really have one book. There's a huge chunk of information that we just don't know, and Absolutely. that could be where some of this fear and doomsday comes in, because it's, it's only a fraction of the story. That's right, and, and to be fair, to, you know, point-counterpoint, if you're, if you're being that, the Mayans were definitely talking about, because it makes sense. If you were talking about the end of a lot, let's call the 5,000-year-long Mayan calendar one year to us, what happens in a year? It starts with spring, it, you know, it, I mean, it starts really with winter, still, in January, February, moves into spring, goes into summer, goes into fall, ends in winter, and winter is this time of death, you know, the leaves are falling off the tree, of darkness, of dormancy, all those things are a natural part before the next spring can take effect. So the Mayans, no doubt, we're looking at the end of this 5,000-year-long, long-count system, as a challenging time. They absolutely, in the Dresden Codex, on the last page prophesying about this, the 2012 date, we're seeing challenging times. They saw war. They saw flood. They saw black earth. They saw some things that, as best as they could project, no doubt this is a challenging time for humanity. Well, hello, I would think that those mind shamans might go, look around you according to your, what you thought was your reality, materialism money, you know, everything looking status quo and just repeating over and over, that's falling apart. That Mm. is in critical crisis mode. You are being challenged to think about what's next, what's the rebirth coming out of this. And, you know, global warming could definitely challenge us in many ways. Our economic restructuring collapse could definitely mean something new to us. I mean, all these things are going through, I would think a shaman would just go, this is exactly part of what this process would mean. And it's not, you know, that, 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 that on December 21st, 2012, uh, the end of a 5,000-year-long cycle is going to take years. The beginning of the next 5,000-year-long cycle is going to take years. We are in transition as we speak. So it's, I mean, just critically important to think we are shaping the future right now. It might be more critical, and it is more critical now what we're thinking, the thoughts we're holding on to, than they will be on December 21st. You know, we need to, the thoughts that we're holding now, the actions that we're doing now, are what 
going to trigger the direction, you know, December 21st really takes. Yes. Through of any day in the future. There's going to be a movie this year with uh, Woody Harrelson in it called 2012. Mm-hmm. It's a disaster movie, more or less, um, at least by the trailers, it looks like, you know, fl- uh, tidal waves and things like that. Um, so, but if nothing else, it will serve a purpose of, you know, as movies do with their advertising and, and mainstream awareness, it will, because I just did a, a book club meeting, a dozen women, only one of them had heard anything about 2012. They thought I had made that whole thing up about the Mayan calendar in 2012. Really? There will, yeah, I, I mean, that was amazing to me. Um, so people, you and I, we travel in circles where people talk about this. But as far as mainstream human consciousness, it is very, very fringe, just kind of making its way in. Um, and a movie will help that, even though that the movie is dark and scary. Um, it will help bring it into consciousness and get people looking into it, um, and you know, hopefully reach that critical mass where enough people go. It's oh, it's choice point. It's based on our actions. It is not. It is not written in stone what's going to happen. Um, you have to believe that, and. Um, and human history teaches that we should believe that, that it has been our actions that have made future events transpire. This is to the, to December 21st, 2012, not going to be any different. Our actions now will cause, will determine what that point in the future looks like and beyond, because that's the way it's always been. So maybe we will take to heart how serious it is, our actions aligning with our higher learning. Higher learning has been with us Higher awareness has been with us for ages. People go to church and get a healthy dose of higher awareness, whether it's through, uh, you know, even Muslims or Christians or Jews. There's this kernel back behind it all. It says there is a creative force that loves you, that is love, loves you, loves the creation, is love. And then it sort of, you know, tangents out and gets kind of messed up from there. But there has been this thing that we've aligned with high morality, high ideology, high vibrational thinking for, you know, eons. It's been with us. We just have not chosen to put it in action in a, in a way that lasts. And now, hopefully, people will take very seriously the idea, I need to put my high awareness into action. That means putting your love forward, being compassionate, being forgiven, you know, I mean, however you want to call it, being transparent, being open to people's honesty and, and not judging it, that's high vibrational thinking, that's fourth dimensional thinking, as you call it, and we can move there. People are moving there. People have been moving there for decades, but when you reach critical mass, and we'll see what critical mass needs to be, but when you reach enough people who have held it, and it doesn't need to be the whole world's population, it can be a fraction of it before it starts making its difference. That's why we're all here at this time. We chose this sojourn because there's a lot of awakening to do. So your book is helping to do that. It is a true treasure. Final note, I do want to say that I was about three chapters into the book and I fell asleep reading. I dreamt I was swimming with the dolphins pretty much all night long, swimming and playing. And it's funny, if I have quite a few reviews, which are great, and, you know, if people read my, if there's anybody that's read my book, or, or I, I, yeah, you were, people that leading reviews um, have mentioned this thing, that reading it has triggered dolphin dreams, which I think is just the most amazing, wonderful thing, um, because this dolphin reality, if you pare it down to what it really is, it's intelligent creatures living this existence without very much fear, if any at all, and without ownership, without fear of having enough stuff, without building things, without owning things. That's a reality to dolphins. So maybe living a dolphin dream is you've imagined yourself in this place of a completely different, that new paradigm shift where it's almost like what we call heaven. If we were our same intelligent souls, not worried about food, clothing, shelter, threat, lack, fear, well, that, gosh, that's virtually heaven to us. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, it, it's the, almost the highest compliment when someone says, reading your book, I, I had a dream about dolphins after that. That's the coolest thing ever. Tell the listeners what we can do to help protect the dolphins. There's lots of things. You can go on the website, save whales. Of course, dolphins are whales. So anything like that, you get involved. Um, it raises awareness of what dolphins do. Um, you know, just the energy of 
the human species acknowledging dolphins as another intelligent species is is a big thing to carry because you know dolphins still are being slaughtered in Japan as food, um, which is it's just tragic. The more that you become aware of them um, and think of them being herded and slaughtered um, for meat, it is just a, a really sad thing. Um, of course, we've come to the point where we have dolphin-safe tuna and things like that, but dolphins are still herded. Um, over tuna, it's still a traumatic experience for them to be caught and released. Um, a lot of them die in the process, um, are allowed to die. Even in dolphin-safe tuna, they're allowed to die. Oh. So, I mean, it's really an awareness thing. Um, you know, you can argue about dolphins in, in captivity, um, yes. you know, everything else, and that's almost a different, a whole different conversation. Um, yeah. So I don't know if we need to open that up now, but just being aware, being aware that there's a species out there that is highly social, highly intelligent, may have something for us, very likely have something for us in our, in our mysterious evolution um, where they've led the way. It's already been proven about echolocation and sonic, you know, sonic um, awareness and uh, sonic healing, sonic um, by echolocation, seeing into things. That's already true. So um, we can't, we've got to honor the species. And if you honor that species, why do you draw the line at the next species down? You know, it just makes you honor all of it. Thank you so much, Eric. I noticed that the name of the character in the book is Ryan Erickson, and you have a son named Eric, and that's Eric's son. I have a son named Ryan. <laughs> I have a son named Ryan who is Eric's son. The funny story about that is I wrote the first draft of this book before I had my son Ryan, and <laughs> oh. it was it was just a funny. We just I, I think I picked the name for that character because I like the name Ryan. Um, I like I named my son Ryan because his his name is you know I named him Ryan because I love the name Ryan. That is just a kind of a funny thing. Um, it, it, there's a little bit of a telltale cosmic twist to the end of the book. Um, you don't want to give away, but there was a reason why the name the character's name sounded similar to mine. Um, that was probably the very first uh, first reason that it was a combination of letters that my name has a combination of similar letters, sort of sound similar. But ultimately, the name Ryan I just stuck of a name that I loved, and um, so my son got it. But Eric's son, I know, is very funny that <laughs> I named him that and then had the son, and he's <laughs> Eric's son. <laughs> but it's funny. Ryan, who's Eric's son. Well, thank you for your time today, and I encourage everyone to go on this wonderful journey. Read your copy of The Aquarians by Eric Rankin. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much, Loren, and I... Um, I appreciate so much the work that you're doing. It's critical now. Um, you and everyone, um, don't don't lose, and I know you won't, the sight that we are being called on in this moment in time to really shape what is happening, to really open up, go within, open your heart space, jump into that heart space, do what love would do, think the, the thoughts that love would think. It's going to be great. Absolutely. Very well said. Thank you. And this concludes our show. Everyone have a wonderful afternoon. We'll see you on the next Healing Conversation. Now I leave you with some healing music from AcousticHealth.com.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.